we're going to jump into God's Word, and I want to begin by asking you this question. When's the last time, you don't have to answer this, I don't want you to shout any, any answers here, but when was the last time you received the gift that you really, really wanted? I mean, a gift that you just went, yes, yes, this is what I wanted. I could never afford this. I wouldn't have bought this for myself. This is awesome. This person knew me, and they got me just the thing that I always wanted. Um, I want you to get that picture in your head because um, there are sometimes, we all know this uh, as gift receivers and as gift givers, there are sometimes that you get a gift and it is just a home run gift, right? And then there are other times you get a gift and it's an absolute dud. And you think, has this person ever met me before? Like, why would they give me this? Like, be like if somebody gave me like a USC sweatshirt, like that's a bad gift, right? You just completely missed it, right? If you gave me that. Although, you, know, you always need stuff to wash the car with and stuff. So that would work. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> anyway, I didn't mean to start any wars. I'm just saying. So there are some gifts that are fantastic and they hit it and then there are other gifts that completely miss it. But then there's the in-between gifts that are just kind of practical. They're just like, oh, you know, I, I actually needed that. You know, it didn't thrill me, but okay, I, I actually did need a new toothbrush or whatever, right? And, and you get that. Um, I remember as a kid, there used to always be these um, great gifts at Christmas. Well, not always. Some, some years we had, my parents had more money to spend than other years, but on the, on the big years, there was always one or two really fantastic gifts, the kind of things you're like, yes, and you can't wait to go tell your friends what you got. And then there were always those um, practical gifts, right? So, in, and in our family, you always got to open one gift on Christmas Eve, just one, and then we open the rest of our gifts on Christmas morning, and you, you, you would look and you'd shake the boxes and you'd try to pick the coolest gift that you thought was going to be cool, and you would open it up, and it was like probably 50-50 whether you would get a practical gift or a good gift, and there's nothing worse than Christmas Eve and you open a, a bag of underwear. And you're just like, wow, really? And I always, you know, when I was a kid, my perspective changed as a parent, but when I was a kid, I always thought this was such a ripoff. You know, because parents are kind of contractually obligated to buy you socks and underwear anyway, right? And then they do it at Christmas. It doesn't seem right. It just feels like something. They're trying to get one over on you. But as a parent, I learned that that's a very wise way to go. But anyway, um, I, I always detested those, the, the box that had the underwear and the socks in it. There was always one. And I was always just so bummed about it. Um, except for one year. There was one year that this changed. I was playing on a, a football team. Uh, I was, I, was uh, I think I was 10 years old, and when I was that age, um, in the sports leagues that I was in, I usually played with older kids, so I was playing with 12 and 13-year-olds, and um, we had a team sleepover, and it was a huge deal, right? And it was a really huge deal for me because I was younger than them, and I really wanted to be like them, and I really wanted to be accepted by them, and I really wanted to be cool like them, and so I gave a lot of thought to this sleepover, how to not do anything stupid, how to make sure I didn't look like a little kid, how to be really cool like them, because 12 is pretty much grown up, right? And so when I was looking at these 12-year-olds, I was thinking, I, I got to be like them. And so what did I know? I was already nervous because I'm thinking, I'm going to show up in these stupid little kid pajamas that I wear. And they're going to never let me live it down. Because here's what I knew. I had a dad who was an adult, and I had an older brother who was an adult. And I knew that they did not sleep in pajamas. They slept in boxer shorts. 
And I said to myself, all of these guys are going to be in their boxer shorts, and I'm going to show up in pajamas, and I'm going to look like the stupidest kid, and I'm never going to hear the end of it, and they're never going to accept me. And I was really nervous, and I was really upset about this, because I knew that all the older guys wore boxer shorts, and I wore tidy whities Now, I know that's more information than you wanted about me, right? But, but... You need to know this because I, I only owned one pair of boxer shorts and they were probably two years old and they didn't fit. They were super tight because, you know, you grow so fast at that age, I could barely get in them. And, and I thought, well, I gotta, I'm not showing up in pajamas cause, and, and I got to wear these boxer shorts. And so I put on these boxer shorts. It was all I could do just to get them on. And I, they cut off my circulation. I couldn't breathe. I was in pain the whole time. And I wear these things. And I get to this party. And it gets to bedtime. And everybody rolls out their sleeping bags. And we're all ready to go. And I'm thinking, okay, this is where everybody's going to get their boxer shorts and get into the things. And they all went one by one into the bathroom and changed into pajamas. And I didn't even bring any pajamas. And I'm there in these ridiculous boxer shorts that are killing me and make me look entirely stupid. And so I just decided I'm sleeping in my clothes this time. And I slept in my clothes and I didn't get one wink of sleep because I was in so much pain the whole time I slept. And I'll just leave it at that. But that was about three weeks before Christmas. And on Christmas morning, when I opened up a package of brand new boxer shorts, I was the happiest kid in America. (laughs) So there are times when the practical gift is something that you can look forward to. Here's the thing. God gives us gifts. And as the church, he particularly gives us gifts, even to the local church. He gives us gifts as a congregation. And he does it in at least a couple of ways. One is he gives spiritual gifts to every single believer. Everyone who is a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within our heart. And the scripture says that when the Holy Spirit dwells within us, that he gifts us in very specific ways And that in those specific ways, they're not really a gift to me, they're a gift to the church that God gives through me, right? Does that make sense? I'm supposed to exercise my gift in a way that blesses the church, blesses the world, and furthers the mission of God. And so he gives gifts like that. And we're all to exercise our gifts. And some of you have spiritual gifts that I, that I could never dream of having. And you exercise them so beautifully and so well. I mean, seriously, just today, we just had a whole bunch of people serving us out there. The, this hospitality gift that so many of you have, that is just amazing the way that you make people feel loved and cared for and all of that every time you serve. And, and we all have these kinds of gifts, Right? And we need to be using them. There's another way, though, that God gives gifts to the church. And that is that he gives gifted people to the church to play certain specific roles. And we're going to look at this in Ephesians chapter 4. And I want you to turn there with me. Open your Bibles, New Testament, book of Ephesians. You're going to find it sandwiched between Galatians and Philippians in Paul's letters toward the back of your New Testament. And we're going to be today in Philippians 4, and if you have like a bookmark or something, just stick it there in Philippians 4, because although we're going to go to a couple other places, we're going to keep coming back. This is going to be the place that we camp. And I want you to see this in Philippians 4 as we think about the way that God gives gifts to the church, and it begins in verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Now we're talking about the first century church here, and we're talking about the way that God gifted the church. And it says He gave these gifted men to the church. He gifted these men, and then He put them into roles that they were to play in the church. And they were apostles like Paul and Peter and John, 
Um, some were prophets that actually spoke the word of God or even were writers of the New Testament. Um, and there were some who were evangelists like Philip, guys who God just used and he would send them around from place to place and they would preach the gospel and, and they would have an unusual power in the way that they preached and people would come to know Christ. And then finally, the last grouping that he has there is pastors and teachers. And, and in the church today, we still, even though we're past the first century and the apostles and the prophets are long gone, we still have uh, evangelists and we have pastors and teachers that God has gifted the church today. And he gifts the church with those people for very specific purposes. So you have a pastor. Now I'm going to try to talk about this in all sincerity without sort of sounding weird because I'm talking about your pastor being a gift to you, which like no duh, right? You guys know that? Okay. So, but, but here's the thing. Why does God do that? Why does God give you a pastor teacher? And by the way, that last word there, it says pastors and teachers, is really one Greek phrase, and it's better understood pastor teachers. So it's like a hyphenated phrase. The idea is that your pastor has a couple of roles. One is to care for the flock the way a shepherd cares for sheep, and then the other is to teach. And so the pastor teacher is generally the person who is the senior pastor in one of our churches today who's playing that kind of a role. And his job is to equip us, to train us, to do all that. So why does God give people like that to the church? Look at verse 12. For the equipping of the saints. Now, who are the saints? Raise your hand if you're a saint. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a saint, okay? In the way we use the term these days, we think saints are like people that churches are named after and stuff like that. But saints are actually just any follower of Jesus Christ is called a saint in the Bible. So the job of the pastor teacher is to equip the saints for the work of service of the building up of the body of Christ. It is the saints who are to do the ministry of the church and the main role of the pastor-teacher leader is to equip the saints so that they can effectively do this. Now, I have talked about this till I turn blue in the face, and you guys know this already, but let me just say it again. It wouldn't matter if I was the most gifted pastor, the most gifted preacher in the world, which I clearly am not. But even if I was, it wouldn't make any difference because I don't go every day to your place of work, to your family, to your neighborhood, to your community, and to your school. I don't have the opportunity to minister to people that you have. And so my main job is to minister to you in a way that will help you to go and minister to the people that God has placed you around every day. And then God has also placed me around some people every day in my community and all of that, and I minister to them. But my main job here with you is to help you grow up in Christ so that you're better prepared to minister to other people for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, when I was 10, I wanted to look to my friends like I was more mature. I wanted to dress in a way that they thought was more mature. I wanted to act in a way that they thought was more mature because I knew that I really wasn't that mature and I wanted to fit in. I wanted to look mature even though I wasn't. But what the Bible is talking about here is actually making us mature. 
so that whatever our age, no matter how long we've been a Christian, whatever training we've had, however much we went to Sunday school as a kid or didn't go to Sunday school as a kid, God says He wants to mature us so that we grow up in Him. So that wherever you are in your spiritual journey, if we, were to, if we could somehow put a 1 to 100 growth chart and, and the, the ones were the people who just accepted Jesus today and didn't know anything about the Bible, and the hundreds were the great spiritual giants of our, of our culture today, and, and all of us is somewhere on that scale, I don't care where you are in the scale. I don't care if you're an 18, a 36, or a 70. You need to be moving toward the direction of maturity. Amen? So, so my job and the job of pastors everywhere is to, is to feed you on the Word of God so that you will grow up, so that you can do the work of the ministry. And that has to do with reaching the lost for Christ. This idea that the way we reach the lost is that we get them to listen to some pastor preach some sermon is the wrong approach. It's not working. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it's not working. The way that we reach the lost for Christ is to love them, get to know them, and share the gospel with them ourselves. That's the way we reach the lost for Christ. And you need to be equipped to do that because a whole lot of people, when I say it's your job to reach the lost for Christ, your eyes get about this big and you look like a deer in headlights and you think, I could never do that. And God says he's trying to mature you and help you get ready to do that, to serve people, to encourage people, to challenge people, to teach people, to train people, to come alongside of people. That's the work of the ministry. That's all the things that God is calling you to do. And a pastor's job is to teach and train and disciple us as the church so that we can grow into maturity in our faith and we can handle that kind of assignment. That's my job as I understand it. When I stand up here on Sunday mornings, that's what I'm trying to do. That's all I'm trying to do. Not to entertain you, not to placate you, not to tell you what I think you want to hear, but to build into you in a way that God's word becomes alive in your heart so that it works its way out in your lives so you will be mature and be able to do the work of the ministry. And one of the ways I do that is I teach the word of God. I teach what it says. I teach what it means as best I understand it. Not what I wish it said. Not what I would be more comfortable with it meaning. But what it actually says, what it actually seems to mean. So these last couple of weeks, we've been addressing difficult issues. We've been talking about this issue of homosexuality because it's so much a topic of interest in our culture today for obvious reasons. Uh, and we've been talking specifically about the issue of marriage because this concept, this issue of gay marriage has become such a hot button in our culture. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled on this about three weeks ago now and said, hey, every state has to um, perform and recognize gay marriage and they don't have a choice about that. And, and so it's a huge deal and it's in the papers and it's on the news and it's on social media and your friends are talking about it and people want to know your opinion on it and we're all swimming in this sea of this and we have a choice. We could put our heads in the sand and pretend like it's not a big deal and it's not an issue that we don't really have to have an opinion about and we don't really care about or we can do the very best we can to understand what God's word has to say about how Christians are to live under these circumstances, what is true from the Bible, and how are we to put it into practice in our lives. And that's what we're trying to do here. So let me just say this very quickly. And I've been saying, I said it last week. Um, I don't know how else to do this. I've been preaching three weeks now on this. Two weeks ago, I introduced it by laying out the main passages of scripture that discuss um, the issue of homosexuality and the issue of marriage. I didn't have much time to say much more about it, except this is what the Bible says, this is what the Bible teaches. Last week, I began to talk about this question of, okay, therefore, what does that mean for us? And today, I want to take it further with that. 
if you're just here today and you haven't heard last week's or the week before, you are going to not understand fully what I'm trying to say. You're not going to fully understand what I think is a biblical message on this. I don't know what else to do except ask you to please go to the website, which is graceduarte.com, and listen to the sermons from the last two weeks. If you put last two week's sermons together with this week's sermon, put it all as a package, you'll get a pretty fair understanding of what I'm trying to get across in really laying out this subject. So I just really encourage you to do that. Now, how many of you saw last week or heard about last week um, the interview uh, with President Carter in which he talked about Jesus' view on gay marriage? Anybody see that? A couple of you? Very, very interesting. If you don't know this, if you're too young to know this, or if you're so old that you forgot, whatever the case, um, President Carter was president in the 70s. I remember when he ran for president, the gigantic issue that came up when he was running for president is he was the first presidential candidate in the history of our country to ever refer to himself as a born-again Christian. That was kind of a buzz phrase at the time, and he said he was born again. He was trying to say, I'm an evangelical Christian. I actually believe the Bible. I'm really a follower of Jesus. I'm not just somebody who sort of goes to church and that sort of thing. And so he labeled himself that way. Uh, Whatever you think of his presidency, uh, after his presidency has been over, he's been active in ministry, active in his church, active in in the country and in the world. So when he was asked about this subject in an interview with the Huffington Post, I was interested to hear what he had to say. And what he had to say was rather surprising to me. And I didn't want to pull it up out of context and just tell you what he had to say. So I'm going to give you about two and a half minutes and we're going to actually watch the interview. So I want you to watch the screen and see what um, President Jimmy Carter had to say about about the subject. Uh, And I was struck, even as I'm talking to you now, about how much faith has resonated for you. When you were first dissatisfied with politics, you went back to your faith. You went on uh, sort of missions almost. I did. Um, I'm on missions. You talk about being reared in the kind of AME church tradition. I was. Um, how important is faith to, was faith to you throughout your career and how much is it uh, sort of important to you now? Well it's always been important in my life. You know I'm a born again Christian so-called. I'm, I'm a Baptist. Uh, I taught Sunday school the day before yesterday. I'll be teaching again next Sunday. I teach every Sunday that I'm home in Plains. In a tiny church, we have about 30 regular members, and we have sometimes two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight hundred visitors who come to see the curiosity of a politician teaching the Bible. Bible, (laughs) And and so I'm I'm deeply involved in our church, and 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 my faith has been a kind of the foundation of my encouragement when I was when I was uh, in trouble or failed on something, and and given me a new opportunity or motivation to reach for greater things in my own life. Uh, and I think that it's, uh, I never have run across any really serious conflicts between my political obligations and my religious faith. How about gay marriage? Uh, that's no problem with me. You know, the only, I think uh, everybody should have a right to get married uh, regardless of their sex. And uh, the only thing I would draw a line on, I, I wouldn't be in favor of the government being able to force a local church congregation to perform gay marriages if they didn't want to. Right. But, but the, those two partners should be able to go to the local courthouse or to a different church and get married. That's no problem. I have had a problem with abortion, you know, and this has been a long-time problem of mine. I, I, I have a hard time believing that, that, that Jesus, for instance, yeah. would approve abortions uh, unless it was because of, uh, of rape or incest or, or if the mother's life. mother's life was in danger. Yeah. So I've, I've had that struggle, but I've, my, my oath of office was to obey the Constitution and, 
as in, and, and the laws of this country as interpreted by the Supreme Court. So I, I went along with that, but, but that's been the only caveat. So when I was Would in, Jesus approve gay marriage? I, I, believe, I believe he would. I believe Jesus would. I don't, know how, I don't have any verse in Scripture. No, 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 but I just uh, intuitively, yeah. No, I, 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 I believe that, that Jesus would approve gay marriage, but I'm not, that's just my own personal belief. Yes. Yeah. I, th I think Jesus would encourage any sort of love affair if it was honest and sincere. And, um, and was not damaging to anyone else. And I don't see that gay marriage damages anyone else. In your book, one of the things you... Okay, so, um, fascinating, right? Really, really interesting. Um, and, and I wanna be very, very clear about what I'm about to say because um, I have uh, a lot of respect for President Carter. Uh, I, I, I didn't think he was a great president, but I think he has been a good man, and I think he's a genuine follower of Jesus, and I appreciate that. But uh, he has been uh, um, theologically moving to the left for some time now. Very, very interesting to hear what he had to say. Let me give you the quote. He said, I believe Jesus would, me asking, being asked, would Jesus approve of gay marriage? I believe Jesus would. I don't have any verse in Scripture I believe Jesus would approve gay marriage, but that's just my own personal belief. I think Jesus would encourage any love affair if it was honest and sincere, was not damaging to anyone else, and I don't see that gay marriage damages anyone else. Now, with all due respect to President Carter, here's what I want to say about that. Unfortunately, people have a tendency to imagine a version of God that agrees with them about things, and then to put that version of God's words into the mouth of the real God. Does that make sense? Um, and here's the thing. We're always better off letting God speak for himself, right? So, so interesting for him to say, um, I, I believe that Jesus would approve of gay marriage. I don't have a scripture verse for that, right? Why doesn't he have a scripture verse for that? Because there are no scripture verses for that. The scripture teaches very clearly the opposite of that. So this is important. And again, I, I, feel, I feel such a strong, I feel so strongly compelled to, to say, if you're just hearing what I'm saying today for the first time, please listen to the whole thing and get it in context. Because I spent a lot of time laying out what the Bible says about homosexual activity and particularly about marriage and gay marriage. And it's Clear. You can like it or not like it, agree with it, disagree with it, you can do whatever you want with it, but it's clear. And for that reason, I really want to, I'm predicting right now that the debate, which has been about is gay marriage right or wrong, is going to be shifting and it's no longer going to be about is gay marriage right or wrong when it comes to the church, because uh, the answer would be, well, I don't know, what does the Bible say? And the Bible could not be more clear about it. Therefore, I predict that the, de the debate is going to shift, and it's no longer going to be about what does the Bible say about it, but whether we should listen to the Bible anyway. Is the Bible really worth our attention? That's really what the debate's going to be about. Because the Bible is so clear on this subject, and again, it, are, it is our nature to want to worship a God who agrees with us. 
And when we feel strongly about something, for whatever reason, it could be because we have gay friends and we would hate for them to miss out on being able to have the same kind of family life that we get to have. Or it could be because we're just politically liberal and that's what our political camp believes. Or it could be for any number of reasons. But when what we feel strongly in our hearts disagrees with what the Word of God says, we come to a crossroads where we have to ask ourselves, am I going to be the judge of the Word of God or is the Word of God going to be the judge of me? And that's a hard one. And, and, and it's, it, it's an honest one that we're going to have to grapple with. And we're going to need to do it with sincerity and with effort. Because here, here's what I've always said. You know, I don't have time today to unpack all the reasons why the Bible is uh, dependable and why it's a historical document that we can trust and all of that. But here's what I want to say. Don't be afraid of that debate. <laughs> Because the Bible holds up under scrutiny and has for 2,000 years. Like the word of God stands firm in and of itself. It is a reliable document. It is the word of God. So if there is a God and if he has, if he has communicated to us through his word, then there's not much point in us arguing anymore about whether or not homosexual activity is okay in God's eyes. He answered the question. He made it very clear. Any and all homosexual activity is sinful, and marriage is instituted by God is between one man and one woman, okay? That's pretty clear, and I laid that out in the first sermon. If you don't have it, go back and listen to that. But when God has spoken for himself on a subject, it's best for us to let his word stand. And if we are uncomfortable with it, we have to recognize that maybe God's using it to shave off some rough edges in our lives and get us to line up with him. So the Bible's clear on the subject, and that's why we teach the Word of God, because the Scripture says that I, as a pastor teacher, have been given to the church with the responsibility of teaching the Word of God so that you feed on the Word of God, so that you grow up in maturity and are able to do the work of the ministry. So if you have um, a pastor who is doing that, then you should be growing and maturing, if all other things being equal. So here's the question. What does that look like? What does it look like when we as Christians living in this society are growing up and maturing and becoming more mature in Christ? What are the marks of that maturity? What are the sure signs that you can look at and go, wow, this is a person where Jesus is actually active in their life. This is a person that's really following Jesus. If you want to know the sure sign to look for, there's one sign that stands above all others according to scripture. And what is that? Love. They asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, could you, could you just sum up the whole Bible for us? He goes, yes, no problem. Here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's all about love. Yeah, but all those rules, all those, all those, um, all those traditions, all those things that were, yeah, it's all about love. Just love God and love people. That's it. In fact, when Jesus uh, pulled his disciples aside and he said, listen, I'm going to tell you that I'm not going to be with you very much longer. And when I'm gone, there are going to be people and they're not going to know what to make of you. And here's how they're going to know that you are my disciples. Did he say they will know that you are my disciples by your right doctrine? Did he say they're going to know you're my disciples by how you win debates with other people? Are they going to know you're my disciples because you attend a church building every Sunday morning and you go through these religious rituals? Is that what he said? No, what did he say? They will know you are my disciples by your love. That's John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. 
You can look it up when you have some time. They will know us by our love. So let's go back to Ephesians 4 now and see how this works out. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 14. As a result of all of this teaching and training and equipping, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. He says, listen, you need to feed on the Word of God. You need to be trained up in the Word of God. You need to walk closely with God. You need to learn to recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life so you can do the work of the ministry because if you don't, here's what's going to happen. The world is going to keep coming up with new ideas, new philosophies, new religions, new approaches to spirituality, and they're going to be selling you on these ideas. And they're going to keep coming and they're going to keep twisting the truth. And there's going to be this deceitful scheming and these new philosophies and these vain ideas. And they're going to keep coming. And has that been true? Boy, it just keeps coming. And one of the things we're noticing in our culture today is that the culture has shifted in its philosophy. That as a culture, philosophically, a whole lot of people in our culture no longer believe that there is a moral right and a moral wrong, but that everything is a gray area. And so he says, as these philosophies change, be careful that you don't get tossed around by these philosophies and thrown off course. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. How are we going to grow up? It's going to involve speaking the truth in love. Now, how many of you have heard that phrase before, speaking the truth in love? Raise your hand. Yeah, it's pretty well known, right? Pretty common phrase. Speaking the truth in love. The problem with this, and I've talked about this before, the problem with this is that we tend to misunderstand what that means. We tend to interpret speaking the truth in love to mean be nice, be kind, be gentle. When you have something to say that's hard for someone to hear, Dress it up a little bit. You don't have to just nail them between the eyes. You're going you're gonna to have to just sort of be gentle and be careful. Maybe include two or three compliments with everything that you need to correct. You know, all of that kind of stuff. You know, speak the truth in love. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean speak the truth in a loving way. Or, or another way to put it, it doesn't mean speak the truth as if you actually love the person. What it means is love people actually love people. And in the context of a love relationship, speak the truth in love. In the context of someone who knows you care about them. In the context of someone that, a relationship where you have invested in them, where you have been there for them in hard times, where you have not served as judge and jury, but you have been someone who comes alongside and encourages and tries to help. So that when it comes time, when you need to address something in a friend's life, in a loved one's life, in your spouse's life, in your brother's life or your sister's life in Christ, and you need to say something, that there's a context that's already been built so you don't have to go, now listen, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not judging you. You could just actually say it because you already love them and they know that. Now, how many of you receive something like that better from someone who loves you and has a track record as compared to someone who you just met and they're telling you what to do? There's no comparison, right? So he says we're to speak the truth in love. Part of this growing up, if we're going to be mature Christians, as we deal with these questions, and guys, homosexuality is not the only question we're going to have to deal with as our culture continues to move away from God, right? 
We're dealing with all kinds of questions and all kinds of people who have all kinds of ideas, and we are going to have to be a voice light in the midst of the darkness. And so we need to know how do we do this. And I just want to say, above all else, don't worry about memorizing where the passages are. Don't worry about beating them over, your head, over the head with your Bible. Do this. Make sure they know you love them. Not because you told them, but because you loved them. There's a huge difference between loving someone and pretending that you love someone, right? And people can tell. In the context of actually loving someone, speak the truth. See, as a church of Jesus Christ, we can do better than we've been doing. We have to do better than we've been doing. And, and you know, I, I'm so frustrated with the tone of the debate from the Christian side. Listen, I expect lost people to behave like lost people. What's frustrating is when the church acts hateful. Like, what is that? What does that have to do with this? They'll know you are my followers by your love. Remember, remember John 1.14? Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. We don't have to choose one or the other. We don't have to compromise the truth in order to be loving and kind and gracious because we genuinely love people. We're, we get so caught up and worried about what will happen if, if I just um, you know, become friends with somebody who just doesn't even really follow Jesus. Well, guys, I have news for you. That's why you're here. That's why you're on earth. There's a lost world who needs Jesus. And we're like, oh, but if I rub up against them, maybe their ideas will rub off on me. Maybe I'll get all sullied. Listen, do you remember when Jesus would heal lepers? How did he do it? He touched them. He walked up and touched them. Now, you don't touch a leper. Why not? They're contagious. They make you sick. If you touch a leper there's a great chance you might become a leper. Why didn't Jesus become a leper? Why didn't they rub off on him? Because when Jesus touches a life, he rubs off on you. We don't need to be terrified of the boogeyman out there, these, these people with these crazy ideas and how we must not be around them. Listen, yes, we want to make sure that we protect our children's hearts and we do all of those kinds of stuff. We need to make wise decisions. And our closest relationships need to be with people that support us and love us and understand and, and follow our God. But there's tons of people out there who just need to meet a real Christian. There's somebody who knows Jesus and will love them the way Jesus loves them. And, and you say, well, why do we have to make it an issue? Can't, let's just be nice to people then. Let's just not make it an issue because it's so divisive. Why do we have to make it an issue? We're going to go a few minutes long today. We started late because of the barbecue, so bear with me. Those of you who are looking at your watch, don't freak out. I know, I'm almost done. Um, but I, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you're in Ephesians, just go back a couple of books. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Okay. Because this is this passage, we still haven't read this in this three-week series, um, and it's important that we get this out there because this is one of the most commonly discussed passages on the subject, or that has to do with the subject. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul writes this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, is that confusing to anyone? That's, that's, that's about as straightforward as it can be, right? Now, now, maybe there are some questions about, well, what do you mean by the kingdom of God? Maybe there's some questions about, well, how do you define the unrighteous, right? 
But generally speaking, whoever the unrighteous is and whatever the kingdom of God is, the unrighteous are not going to inherit it. That much we understand, right? So when we have this question about, what do you, well, what do you mean unrighteous? He goes on in the middle of verse 9. He says, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, like most lists in Paul's writings, like most lists given in the New Testament, it is not an exhaustive list. It's not listing every kind of sinners. So these, whatever that is, 10 types of sinners, they're not going to heaven. The rest of us are going to heaven. So just avoid these 10 things. That's not what it's saying. What it's talking about is the idea that there are, there are people who choose a lifestyle of sin. They look at Jesus over here who says, follow me and make your life about me. And then they see a world over here that says, make your life about sin. They turn their back on Jesus and say, my life's going to be about sin. Notice it doesn't say, it gives these labels. Very, very politically incorrect, the Bible. Look at the labels that it gives. It actually labels people as, as though this is the definition of their life. I mean, this is a life-defining area of sin. He doesn't just say, you know, people who drink too much will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says drunkards. It's not just somebody who got wasted one time at a, at a wedding reception. This is a drunkard. This is a person who decided that alcohol was going to be their Lord, and they're going to pursue that life. He doesn't say somebody who sins sexually says a fornicator. It says an, a, a, a homosexual. Um, it says effeminate. I don't know what your, what your Bible says in that word. It's a hard one to translate, but it's referring to the male prostitutes of the day. Okay? If this is your life, it says, you're not a part of the kingdom of heaven. There are those who follow Christ, and there are those who don't. And if you don't, and instead you make your life about sin, you don't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Is it hard to hear? Yes, it's hard to hear. Every one of us knows people that, that fit into this category of having rejected Christ, and it's a terrifying thought. But here's the question we have to ask. Do we actually believe God? Do we believe that eternity is forever? Do we believe that heaven is real? Do we believe that hell is real? And do we have any sense of the gravity of the situation of somebody who has decided on a lifestyle of rejecting Christ and what they are facing? And if we do, how in the world can we say that it is loving to say nothing? If, if you're sitting on the side of the road and you know that the road is out above, uh, uh, right around the corner and that you're going off a cliff, and you sit on the side of the road and have a picnic while cars drive off the cliff, you're a wicked person. You have to say something. You don't have a choice because this is real. Now, here's the deal. Verses 9 and 10 gives us this list of people and says, these kinds of people, people who choose sin instead of choosing God, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But don't close your Bible till you read verse 11. For such were some of you. Take your highlighter, your pen, circle, highlight, star, underline that word were. Such were some of you. And it goes on and it says, but you were washed. Washed in what? The blood of Jesus. 
You were sanctified, set apart by God. You were justified. Your sins have been forgiven in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. So you know what this verse means? And you, you just have to take this and think on it because you're not going to give me enough time to explain it. So you're just going to have to take this and think on it. Listen, here's what this means. It means you can be a former homosexual. It means you can be a former drunkard. And, and so on down the list. Now, in our society today, that's not what we've been taught. We've been taught that these categories are categories of the way you are, and you don't have any choices. Even something like being a drunkard, which today our term for that is alcoholic. The idea that is taught in 12-step programs today, and God bless you if you're sober after having been an alcoholic and a 12-step program has helped you. It helped my mom and changed her life and changed my life, and so I'm all for it. But here's what I got to say. The concept in it is that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, and that you have to be an alcoholic in your own mind for the rest of your life, even though you haven't touched alcohol in 30 years. That is contrary to the teaching of Scripture. He says, such were some of you. So why do we have to say something about this? We have to say something because the road is out and cars are going over the cliff and you don't get a second chance after that happens. We have to say something for that reason and we have to say something for another reason. We are just like them except the grace of God has been poured out in our lives. And if that's true, then who in the world am I to judge somebody else? Now, you say, yeah, that's been my point all along. It's not my place to judge. I believe what I believe, but it's not my place to judge. Isn't that true? Yeah, that's true. God has not appointed you or me to be judges. In fact, he said, leave it to me. I'm really good at it. We'll let God judge on that. But here's the deal where we need to not get thrown off. When God has judged already and communicated in his word what is true, then it's no longer about us being the judge. He's already made his statement, and we are just the messengers, and that's a different story. He called us to be messengers. So we have to be willing to say something. We have to be um, willing to go that direction. Oh, my thing's freaking out over here. So there's good news and bad news if you look at 1 Corinthians 6. The bad news is sin is really, 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 really bad. And a lifestyle of sin over choosing God is, is desperately dangerous. The good news is this. Such were all of us. He sets people free. And that's the message that we have to get across. So you want to know something? You want to, you want to know, okay, in light of this decision, this Supreme Court decision, and all of the arguing and all the bickering and all the stuff out there, in light of all that, what am I supposed to do as a Christian? I'm going to give you three things. It's very fast and I'll close. Write it down. The first one is this, rejoice. Supreme Court decision comes out and it says, listen, we're going we're gonna to just throw away whatever the Bible says about this, and we're going to say that gay marriage is legitimate in all 50 states and has to be recognized. And what's the church supposed to do? The same thing we're always supposed to do, rejoice. The Bible says, in all things, rejoice. And he says, and again I say, rejoice. Over and over and over. Listen, guys, the Supreme Court makes their decisions right? Whoever gets elected in this next election is going to get elected. 
Whatever happens in the news, whatever happens in the economy, that stuff's going to happen. But guess what? Our God is still on his throne. And that's never going to change. Never going to change. We have so much reason to rejoice. So instead of getting all freaked out and feeling like I got to go sit in a corner and hide because the world's going to hell in a handbasket, how about I decide I'm going to start pulling some people out of that handbasket because I'm going to stand with the love of God and I'm going to rejoice. You have to rejoice. The second thing, remain. Remain faithful. Remain faithful to the word of God. Don't get knocked over by these waves of doctrine and these new philosophies that keep sweeping through. Remain steadfast in God's word. Press into him in your own relationship. Let him transform you because as he transforms you, then he will use you to touch the lives of other, others and the whole world will be transformed. I talk about this, it seems like every week, that God could change the whole world if he could just change us and we would let him work through us. And you must think, God, does he really believe that stuff? Yes! He really wants to change the whole world, but he has to start with me. He has to start with you. He has to start with his church. So remain faithful. Trust God's word. Trust God's spirit. Let him use you. The third thing is this, reach out. Because there's a whole world out there that doesn't know Jesus. And there's a whole lot of people that are, that are dabbling in the gay lifestyle. There's a whole lot of people that are caught up in drugs. There's a whole lot of people that have given themselves to alcohol. There's a whole lot of people that have sold themselves out to false religions. There's a whole lot of people out there who are just desperately lost. And they keep grasping and they keep trying to find, maybe this will help. Maybe this will help. Maybe if I knew the right person. Maybe if I got the right marriage. Maybe if I, and, and we keep stuffing stuff into our hearts going, why doesn't it fit? Why doesn't it fit? It doesn't fit because only Jesus fits. And we have him. And it's our responsibility before God as thankful servants to share him with other people. We have to reach out. You can do this, church. God's plan is to reach a whole world. And his plan A is to do that through the church. And there is no plan B. He's going to do it through you. He's going to do it through me. He's going to do it through us. So... Let's reach out. Let's trust God. Let's make friends with people that are based in love. And then let's speak the truth in love and watch as God transforms lives. And the number of voices grows because there's more people who can testify our God is an awesome God.